Hello, and welcome to the DadCast. I'm your host, Chris Hale, and during each episode, I will read aloud a short story, poem, or academic, or scholarly article. The Wayfinders, Chapter 3, Peoples of the Anaconda. In the West, time is like gold. You save it, you lose it, you waste it, or you don't have enough of it. In the Barasana language, there is no word for time. Stephen Hugh Jones. Let's begin this third of the Massey Lectures with a story from the shadowy days of the Spanish conquest. In February of 1541, Gonzalo Pizarro, half-brother of Francisco, conqueror of the Inca, began a journey across the Andes in search of El Dorado and the fabled lands of Canela, of cinnamon and gold. Leaving Quito with 220 soldiers, 4,000 native porters, and 2,000 pigs as food, the expedition crested the heights of the Cordillera and began a long, slow descent through the tangled lianas and stunted trees of the cloud forest. By the time it reached the tropical lowlands where the riverbanks gleamed by night with black caiman, the hogs and horses had long since been consumed, and most of the Indian slaves had perished as had 140 Spaniards. The surviving men, reduced to stewing leather and wild herbs, scavenged for roots and berries that left several of them deranged by poison. In desperation, Gonzalo dispatched his second-in-command, Francisco del Orellana, along with 49 men down a high jungle tributary in search of provisions and deliverance. Among this group was a white-frocked Dominican friar, Gaspar de Caravajal, who wrote an astonishing account of the subsequent journey. Reaching the Napo, just one of the 1,100 major rivers that drain the Amazon, the men led by Orellana mutinied, refusing in their agony to return upstream as per the original orders. The current was too powerful, and at any rate, no food had been found. Orellana, in a fit of legal formality for which the conquistadors were famous, officially resigned his commission with Gaspar de Caravalla as his witness, that he might accept by acclamation a new command at the head of the bedraggled survivors. Abandoning Gonzalo Pizarro to his fate, Orellana and his band set off into the unknown one day after Christmas 1541, heading down the swift-flowing Napo on a launch hastily crafted from jungle trees and iron nails scavenged from the hooves of dead horses. Tormented by the sun and haunted at night by the roar of howlers and low hallucinatory drone of frogs and chicadas and the unexpected bark of jaguars, they reached after several days the confluence of the Napo with the Rio Uquilia, as the upper Amazon is known in Peru. There, to their horror, they found the shores lined with Indian settlements, each linked to the next by the sound of messenger drums that guaranteed a hostile reception at every bend of the river. Three Spaniards died, targets of the flying death, darts coated in curare and shot silently from the forest. Gaspar de Cavalla was himself blinded in one eye by an arrow, which fortunately for history was not poisonous. His journal records the anguish of men festering with disease, their lethargic bodies riddled with parasites, their guts wrenching from lack of food. It was cruel torment indeed for which, with each passing kilometer, the richness and prosperity of the native villages only increased, along with the bounty of the fields. 
the physical beauty and numbers of inhabitants, and the evident elaboration of high culture. After nine days and several hundred kilometers, the Spaniards entered the lands of the Omagua and found to their astonishment a continuous series of villages reaching some 320 kilometers along the shores, each no more, as Carvajal reported, than a crossbow shot apart. One community stretched for five leagues, roughly 25 kilometers, a single concentration of thatched roofed houses. After six months, Orellana's group passed the confluence of the Rio Negro, a tributary four times the size of the Mississippi, that were it to exist on any other continent would be the second largest river on earth. The scale of forest, river, and sky utterly unsettled their senses. On the banks of the Rio Nhumada, two days further downstream, they met Indians who claimed to be vassals of a ferocious tribe of female warriors, outliers of a civilization of women who dwelt in the distant headwaters, in villages of stone at the edge of saltwater lakes. There they rode camels, wore the finest woven cloth, and worshipped the divinity of the sun in temples lined with macaw feathers and parrot plumes. To procreate, they captured men solely for the purposes of breeding. All male offspring was summarily killed. A fortnight later, according to Caraval, the expedition entered the land of the Amazons and actually encountered and did battle with squadrons of Indians led by female captains, naked women, tall and white, with long braided hair wound about the head. Each fought with the power of ten men, and it was only after several had been killed that the Spaniards, their brigantine riddled with arrows, escaped. The further the Spaniards drifted downstream, the more elaborate were the settlements. At the mouth of the Rio Tapajos, near the modern Brazilian town of Santarém, the expedition was met by a flotilla of 200 war canoes, each carrying 30 men, all in full regalia, with brilliant cloaks of feathers and coronas that shone like the sun. Thousands more inhabitants stood warily along the shore. The riverbanks, for a hundred kilometers, were dense with houses and gardens, and away from the shores were signs, as Carvajal wrote, of very large cities. When finally, on August 24th, 1542, eight months after setting out on the Napo, and a year and a half since leaving the cool mountain air of Quito, Orellana's naked band, too weakened by hunger to row, reached civilization in the sea. They remained confounded by the wonder of the river that had brought them there. In the delta, there were islands the size of European nations. The riverbanks, such as they were, lay more than 300 kilometers apart. The expedition limped out to sea and was kilometers offshore, out of sight of land, before the water turned too brackish to drink. Returning to Peru, Gaspar de Caraval completed his journals, a remarkable saga of adventure and discovery that was almost immediately reduced to ridicule, dismissed even by his fellow clergy as pure mentiras, a pack of lies. His problem lay in the fantastic story of the female warriors, which to his critics was an obvious fabrication because it echoed so closely Greek myth and the accounts of Herodotus. The word Amazon is derived from Amazon, meaning without breast. And it had long referred to a legendary nation of women warriors living beyond the known world of the Mediterranean who reputedly sliced off their right breast 
to facilitate the use of the bow in battle. Such was their reputation as fighters that Hercules, in his ninth labor, was charged with the capture of the girdle of their queen. The discovery of such women in the savage heart of the New World was simply too much to believe, especially as Carvajal was hardly the first to have laid claim to such an encounter, albeit in a new location. Christopher Columbus, seeking evidence of the Indies, and recalling Marco Polo's discovery of an island of women in the Sea of China, described to Queen Isabella an island of women who lived without men, wore copper armor, and took cannibals as lovers. Amerigo Vespucci found man-eating women on the Caribbean island of Martinique. Cortez sent his cousin Francisco north along the coast of Mexico to investigate reports of a land of women ruled by a mythical black queen, Califia, hence the name California. Indeed, like El Dorado and the Fountain of Youth, the land of women warriors was on every explorer's itinerary. In time, the European myth became modified by the fertile imagination of the Amerindian peoples who had learned from cruel experience to tell the whites whatever it was they wanted to hear. Thus, the tale of the female warriors was fed back to the old world in a new and enlivened form, which had a ring of authenticity that transformed myth into history. King Charles V was particularly intrigued, and because of him, the river that had always been known as the Mar Dulce, the Sweet or Freshwater Sea, took a new name, the Rio Amazonas, the River of the Amazons. But skeptics such as the Spanish historian Francisco López de Gomara, writing as early as 1552, remained unconvinced. Dismissing Caraval's entire account as a sensational effort to mask the fact that Orellana had committed treason in abandoning his commander, Gonzalo Pizarro, and had found on his expedition neither gold nor cinnamon, nor anything of value for the crown. Buried by court gossip and intrigue, largely ignored by history, Caraval's Relacion, the record of the first European descent of the world's greatest river, would not be published until 1895. Ironically, had the friar not spoken of the Amazon women, his remarkable journal might long have been celebrated for what he undoubtedly did see and faithfully record, observations that today read as revelations to anthropologists and archaeologists. The Amazon, at the time of European contact, was no empty forest, but an artery of civilization and home to hundreds of thousands, indeed millions, of human beings. Amazon provokes cliches even as it defies hyperbole. It is, after all, the world's greatest single expanse of tropical terrestrial life, a rainforest the size of the continental United States, a blanket of biological wealth as large as the face of the full moon. Joseph Conrad described the jungle as less a forest than a primeval mob, a remnant of an ancient era when vegetation rioted and consumed the world. Traveling in the lowlands of the Puntumayo in Colombia in the 1930s, the Capuchin priest Gaspar de Pinel described a sojourn in a land where tall trees covered with growths and funereal mosses create a crypt so saddening that to the traveler it appears like walking through a tunnel of ghosts and witches. This was the Amazon as Green Hell, the name of a popular travel account published in London in 1935. The setting is lowland Bolivia, but it could have been anywhere in the basin. 
On its opening page, the author is blinded by the sun's glare, scorched by its rays, cowed by its eerie, creeping silence of the forest, and brought to agony by the festering stings, the cracking drought of throat and lips, the misery of tropical rain. By the time I became a student of botany in the 1970s, the jungle, a word that had long gone out of fashion, had become an Eden. But a delicate one to be sure, a cornucopia of life as I wrote in one of my first published papers, far more fragile than it appears. In fact, many ecologists have called the tropical forest a counterfeit paradise. The problem is soil. In many areas, there essentially is none. It is a castle of immense biological sophistication built quite literally on a foundation of sand. This rather bold statement, as cliched in its own way as the notion of a green hell, had by the time I entered graduate school become a mantra of the emerging conservation biology movement. Its scientific inspiration was a classic study by a bryologist, a student of mosses, named Paul Richard, whose seminal book, The Tropical Rainforest, was first published in 1952. Forests, Richards pointed out, have two major strategies for preserving the nutrient load of the ecosystem. In the temperate zone, with the periodicity of the seasons and the resultant accumulation of rich organic debris, the biological wealth is in the soil itself. In the tropics, by contrast, with constant high humidity and an annual temperatures hovering around 27 degrees Celsius, bacteria and micro microorganisms break down the plant matter as soon as the leaves hit the forest floor. 90% of the root, root tips may be found within the top 10 centimeters of earth. Vital nutrients are immediately recycled into the vegetation. The wealth of this ecosystem is the living forest, an exceedingly complex mosaic of thousands of interacting and interdependent living organisms. Removing this canopy sets in motion a change reaction of destruction. Temperatures increase dramatically, relative humidities fall, rates of evapotranspiration drop precipitously, and the mycorrhizal mats that interlace the roots of forest trees, enhancing their ability to absorb nutrients, dry up and die. With the cushion of vegetation gone, torrential rains cause erosion, which leads to further loss of nutrients and chemical changes in the soil itself. In certain deforested areas of the Amazon, I warned ominously, the precipitation of iron oxides in leached exposed soils has resulted in the deposition of mile upon mile of lateritic clays, a rock-like pavement of red earth in which not a weed will grow. While fundamentally sound is a way of understanding the basic dynamics of tropical forests, this model, when applied in a sweeping manner to a region as vast as the Amazon, was, on much, was as much slogan as science. For one, it implied an ecological uniformity to the basin that 50 years of field research has exposed as a gross simplification. A third of the Amazon is savanna. Perhaps half is upland forest. But there is an enormous amount of diversity, not only in plant and animal species, but also in geomorphology and soils. No simple scheme could possibly encompass 
a geographical expanse seven times the size of the province of Ontario. But the notion of fragility held for two reasons. First, it served as an environmental agenda and the very legitimate concerns that people everywhere had about the rate of deforestation in the Amazon, much of which was being caused in Brazil, in particular, by the expansion from the south of the agricultural frontier. Second, and more relevant to this story, the suggestion that the forest was a marginal environment fit Western preconceptions of what it meant to live as a native in the Amazon. In 1743, the French explorer and geography Charles-Marie de la Condamine led the first scientific expedition to travel the length of the river. His ethnobotanical discoveries were extraordinary. He was the first to identify quinine as a treatment for malaria, to describe rubber, to examine the botanical sources of curare, and to report the existence of barbasco the fish poisons that would yield the biodegradable insecticide rotenone. He learned about all these remarkable plants from the Indians, and yet his disdain for the peoples of the forest could not have been greater. Before making them Christians, he wrote, they were must first be made human. He saw Indians as children, frozen in their development, trapped within a forest that he revered, but which he ultimately knew nothing. By the time anthropologists entered the Amazon numbers in the 1950s, the surviving indigenous cultures were for the most part living in the remote headwaters at the periphery of the basin. The main trunk of the river and the lower reaches of its principal tributaries had been settled by Europeans for more than 400 years. Indeed, a unique world had emerged, a riverine peasantry of caboclos, men and women of mixed heritage whose entire subsistence base was derived from the indigenous antecedents and adaptations. But of the original inhabitants of the main floodplain of the Amazon, there existed only shadows in the sands, whispered messages in the forest. Anthropologists, ethnographers in particular, naturally were drawn to the extant peoples, the real Indians, if you will. Many of these societies lived along the eastern flank of the Andes, in a wide arc that reached along the margin of the Amazon basin from Bolivia in the south to Colombia in the north, and then across southern Venezuela, the headwaters of the Orinoco and the southern side of the Guine Shield. The Andes, a formidable barrier, were not traversed from the west by roads until after the Second World War. Many cultures I came to know, the Chimane and Mozentane in Bolivia, the Machiguinga and Campa in the Montana of Peru, the Kofan, Siona Sequoia, and the Achura in lowland Ecuador, the Yanomami in Venezuela, did not experience sustained contact until the 1960s. The Warani, with whom I lived in 1981, were not peacefully contacted until 1958, though their homeland is scarcely 150 kilometers from Quito, the national capital of Ecuador, and a city settled for well over 400 years. In 1957, five missionaries attempted to contact the Orani and made a critical mistake. They dropped from the air 
8 by 10 glossy black and white photographs of themselves in what we would describe as friendly gestures, forgetting that the peoples of the forest had never seen anything two-dimensional in their lives. The Borani picked up the prints from the forest floor, looked behind the faces to try to find the figure. Seeing nothing, they concluded that these were calling cards from the devil, and when the missionaries arrived, they promptly speared them to death. To death. The Warani, incidentally, did not spear only outsiders, all of whom they considered to be kawadi or cannibals. They speared one another. Fully 54% of their mortality over eight generations resulted from intra-tribal spearing raids. The Warani were and are an exceptional people, and their history is in many ways unique. But at the same time, they fit a basic pattern shared by many of the marginal societies, marginal only in the sense that they lived literally at the margins of the basin. These cultures were, for the most part, small in numbers, without hierarchy or intense specialization. They tended to be as phallus, lacking overt political leaders, and perhaps most characteristically, they were endogamous. They married amongst themselves, living in isolation and often in open conflict with their neighbors. They had, of course, extraordinary gifts. Orani hunters could smell animal urine at 40 paces in the forest and identify the species. Through generations of empirical observation and experimentation, they had learned to manipulate plants with considerable skill. Poisons from plants enabled them to fish and hunt. Hallucinogenic preparations, such as ayahuasca, revealed levels of alchemical genius beyond the reach or understanding of science. And in making a living on the forest, they had found a way through slash-and-burn agriculture to grow food despite the nutrient-poor soils. Small plots cut from the forest were fired and burned, planted and harvested, with ever-diminishing returns for perhaps three years, and then abandoned to be reclaimed by the forest. All of this activity was critically dependent on population density. Too many people would result in too many fields, with no time for the vegetation to regenerate. The exhaustion of the land and the saturation of the carrying capacity of the environment. To a remarkable extent, this cultural scenario became the filter through which anthropologists understood indigenous life in the Amazon. Societies, it was implied, clung precariously to a perilous existence, constrained always in the environment and its limitations. In 1971, Betty Meggers, a highly regarded archaeologist at the Smithsonian Institute, published Amazonia, Man and Culture in a Counterfeit Paradise, a book that, be required, that became required reading in virtually every introductory anthropology course in South America. Meggers depicted a world of small hunting and gathering societies, virtually unchanged in centuries, none of which could possibly have supported more than a thousand people, a figure she determined arbitrarily. Higher populations, she suggested, might have occurred in the floodplain in the lower river, as indeed Gaspar de Carvajal had reported, but evidence was vague and imprecise. And all along the main trunk of the river, the Aboriginal cultural, cultural pattern had been completely destroyed within 150 years of its discovery. But had it? Preservation of archaeological remains had been as much of a problem in the Amazon as it was in Polynesia. 
but beginning in the 1980s, new techniques unveiled unexpected worlds. Working on the island of Maharajo in the Delta, archaeologists Anna Roosevelt in particular found evidence of a complex culture, perhaps as many as 100,000 people spread over thousands of square kilometers that had, persi- had persisted for at least a thousand years. Near the city of Manuas, as at the confluence of the Rio Negro and the Amazon, massive earthen burial mounds dating to AD 1000 provided evidence that whoever had occupied the land had exploited some 138 domesticated plants, most of which were fruit, were fruit trees and palms. Botanists and ecologists, meanwhile, were discovering throughout the Amazon curious anomalies, large but isolated expanses, expanses of terra preta, black soil, clearly of human origins, showing that people had in fact stayed put and actively worked to enhance the agricultural potential of the land with charcoal for nutrient, retention, organic waste as compost. William Bailey, an ethnobotanist from Tulane University, suggested that as much as a tenth of the upland forests of the Amazon, an area the size of France, may have been nurtured in this manner by the original inhabitants. These observations led other scholars to question traditional assumptions about the origins and impacts of slash-and-burn agriculture. When I lived among the Warani, a people who still had stone tools at the time of contact, I often wondered how such an implement could possibly fell tropical hardwoods that I, as a botanist and one-time logger, could barely cut with a modern axe. Anthropologist Robert Carnero pondered the same question and decided to experiment. To cut down a one-meter tree with a stone axe took 115 hours, three weeks of eight-hour days. To clear half a hectare plot took the equivalent of 153 eight-hour days. According to Betty Meggers and other authorities, such a field could only be worked intensively for three years before being abandoned. Given other demands on an individual's time, hunting, fishing, ritual obligations, it would have been totally impractical and utterly maladaptive to devote so much effort for so little return. Rather than slash, burn, plant, harvest, and move on, people would have had every incentive to stay put. Indeed, as geographer William Denovan had written, the picture of Swidden or slash and burn as an ancient practice by which Indians kept themselves in timeless balance with nature is a total myth. Slash and burn agriculture in the Amazon may be a comparatively recent development, made possible by the post-contact introduction of steel tools. It has become, over time, the agricultural technology of the peripheral peoples of the basin, whose numbers are low and whose lands have been large enough to absorb its almost grotesque inefficiencies. But clearly, this was not the foundation of life among the densely populated cultures we now know to have existed along the main reaches of the Amazon. Anthropologists today recognize that our understanding of these ancient worlds has been for too long filtered through our experience with the marginal societies that survived what was in fact a holocaust. 
to understand the prehistory of the basin through this lens is rather like attempting to reconstruct the history of the British Empire from the perspective of the Hebrides after London had been wiped out by a nuclear bomb. Within a century of contact, disease and slavery had swept away millions of indigenous lives. And yet, incredibly, there is one place in the Amazon where the rhythm of these great civilizations may still be felt and heard. The homeland of an extraordinary complex of cultures known collectively as the peoples of the Anaconda. In 1975, when I first traveled to the northwest Amazon of Colombia, I stopped en route at Villa Vicencio, a small city nestled into the eastern foothills of the Andes, to visit a legendary naturalist, Federico Medem, a Latvian count who had fled the Russian Revolution and found a new life in the forests of the tropical lowlands. He was an old friend of my professor at university, Richard Evans Schultz the botanical explorer who had sparked the psychedelic movement with his discovery of the magic mushrooms in Mexico in 1938 and later spent 12 uninterrupted years in the most remote reaches of the Amazon. I found Dr. Madame in the evening at his home, a rambling compound that resembled the quarters of an old rubber trader. The house had wooden floors and a tin roof. An open veranda hung with hammocks and walls decorated with jaguar and bushmaster skins. Overhead in his office, a ceiling fan cast faint shadows across the desk as he caressed an artifact or ran his fingers over a fading map drawn by hand a century before. His most prized possession was a shaman's necklace, a single strand of palm fiber thread through a six-inch crystal of quartz. He described it as both the penis and crystallized semen of father's son, explaining that within were 30 colors, all distinct energies that had to be balanced in sacred ritual. The necklace was also the shaman's house, the place to which he went when he took Yagi, the hallucinogenic potion also known as Ayahuasca. Once inside, the shaman looks out at the world, over the territory of his people and the sacred sites, the forests, waterfalls, mountainous escarpments, and blackwater rivers, watching and watching the ways of the animals. Long after Madame retired for the night, I remained in his office reading a book that he had recommended, Amazonian Cosmos, written by his good friend, Gerardo Reichel Dolmatov, Colombia's foremost anthropologist, who was also a close colleague of Schultz. It was from Reichel that I first learned of the importance of rivers. For the Indians of the Vaupes, rivers are not just roots of communication, they are the veins of the earth, the link between the living and the dead, the paths along which the ancestors traveled at the beginning of time. The Indians' origin myths vary, but always speak as a great journey from the east of sacred canoes brought up the Milk River from the east by enormous anacondas. Within the canoes were the first people, together with the three most important plants, coca, manioc, and yagi, gifts of father-son. On the head of the anaconda were blinding lights, and in the canoes sat mythical heroes in hierarchical order, chiefs, wisdom keepers who were the dancers and chanters, warriors, shaman, and finally in the tale, servants. All were brothers, children of the sun. 
When the serpents reached the center of the world, they lay over the land, outstretched as rivers, their powerful heads forming river mouths, their tails winding away to remote headwaters, the ripples of their skin giving rise to rapids and waterfalls. Each river welcomed a different canoe, and in each drainage the five archetypal heroes disembarked and settled, with the lowly servants heading upstream and the chiefs occupying the mouth. Thus, the rivers of the Vopes were created and populated, with the Desana people coming into being on the Rio Papuri, the Barasana and Tutoyos on the upper Piraparanana, the Tucano on the Vopes, the Makuna on the Popayaka and lower Piraparana, the Tanakmukas and Latuama on the Meriti and Apaporis. In time, the hierarchy described in the myths broke down. And on each of the rivers, the descendants of those who had journeyed in the same sacred canoe came to live together. They recognized each other as family, speakers of the same language, and to ensure that no brother married a sister, they invented strict rules. To avoid incest, a man had to choose a bride who spoke a different language. Today, when a young woman marries, she moves to the longhouse of her husband. Their children will be raised in the language of the father, but naturally will learn their mother's tongue. The mother, meanwhile, will be working with the children's aunts, the wives of their father's brothers. But each of these women may come from a different linguistic group. In a single settlement, therefore, as many as a dozen languages may be spoken, and it is quite common for an individual to be fluent in as many as five. Yet, curiously, through time, there has been no corrosion of the integrity of each language. Words are never interspersed or pigeonized, nor is language violated by these attempts to pick it up. To learn, one listens without speaking until the language is mastered. One inevitable consequence of this unusual marriage rule, what anthropologists call linguistic exogamy, is a certain tension in the lives of the people with the quest for potential marriage partners ongoing and the distances between neighboring language groups considerable, cultural mechanisms must ensure that eligible young men and women come together on a regular basis. Thus, the importance Reichel Dolmatov wrote of the gatherings and great festivals that mark the seasons of the year. Through sacred dance, the recitation of myth, and the sharing of Coco and Yage, these celebrations promote the spirit of reciprocity, an exchange on which the entire social system depends, even as they link, through ritual, the living with their mythical ancestors and the beginning of time. Intrigued by what I had read, I arranged passage the following morning on a military cargo flight to Mitu, a small settlement without road access, perched on a bend of the Rio Vopes, three hours by air, from Villa Vivesencio. There was no door on the plane, and I felt as if I were riding in the back of a pickup truck through the sky. I spent the better part of a month in Mitu, botanizing with the local Indians, Cubeos and Tucanos, for the most part, but never came close to the heart of their world, spiritually, culturally, or literally. The forests were so vast, the distances too great, the rivers black and stunningly beautiful, but broken by an endless 
succession of cataracts and waterfalls. Two years later, I returned and persuaded a missionary pilot to drop me at the Catholic mission of San Miguel on the Rio Piraparana in the homeland of the Barasana, an hour farther into the forest from Mitu. It was about as remote a destination as one could devise in the northwest Amazon. But this, too, was a fleeting visit, and barriers of language and protocol I literally dropped in from the sky unannounced, and many of the Barasana spoke little Spanish, left me with only a superficial sense of the place, and a sad feeling that with the influence of the missionaries, an extraordinary culture was destined to be lost. This was the familiar lament of anthropologists of the day. Wherever we went, we encountered what we assumed to be disappearing worlds. But then long after my first fumbling visits into the northwest Amazon, something remarkable occurred. In 1986, newly elected Colombian president Virgilio Barco Vargas appointed Martin von Hildebrand, an anthropologist and protege of Reichel Dolmatov, as head of indigenous affairs and told him to do something for the Indian peoples of Colombia. Martin, who had lived for years among the Tamukas and first paddled the length of the Rio Piraparana as a young graduate student, did more than something. In five extraordinary years, he secured for the Indians of the Colombian Amazon legal land rights to an area of some 250,000 square kilometers, roughly the size of the United Kingdom, establishing 162 resguardos altogether, titled lands that were encoded by law in the 1991 political constitution of the country. Nothing like this had ever been done by a nation-state. In the years that followed, as Colombia endured the ravages of war throughout the 1990s and early days of the new century, a veil of isolation fell upon the northwest Amazon. And behind this veil, as Martin explained when he invited me in 2006 to return with him to the Rio Piraparana, an old dream of the earth was reborn. The night before flying out of Mewtwo, Martin and I huddled on the cement floor of our modest lodgings, taking cocoa and tobacco, as Ricardo Marin, a Barasana shaman, identified on a large map the sacred sites we were about to see from the air and visit by river and trail. Martin and his colleagues at the Fundacion Gaia Amazonas, a grassroots NGO working with 50 or more ethnicities in the Colombian Amazon, had codified in two dimensions what Ricardo knew to exist as multidimensional space. In Barasana, there is no word for time, and the sacred sites are not memorials or symbols of distant mythic events. They are living places, as Ricardo explained, that eternally inform the present. For his people, the past is the present, and the sacred sites are to this day inhabited by mythic beings. The following morning, our small plane rose into the clouds and then burst over the canopy like a wasp, minuscule and insignificant. The forest stretched to the horizon, with little initially to betray that people had ever set foot on the land. Ricardo sat in front of me, and I watched him intently as he took in the vista, wanting to see what he saw. We flew that morning for four hours, circumnavigating the entire world of the peoples of the Anaconda, heading east from Mitu over the Rio Papuri, and then south along the Tarara, 
and the ancient ridges that separate Colombia from Brazil. Reaching the confluence of the Rio Coqueta and the Apaporios, we turned west over the great cataracts of UC and Girigiromo to the mouth of Cananari, which we followed north across sandstone escarpments that predate the birth of the Andes. To the west, I could see the distant silhouette of Serrero Campania, small on the horizon, and the immense flat top ridges of Sierra de Chiribiquet, uplifted tablelands, massive and impossibly remote. Clouds swept over the canopy, and at one point, a perfect rainbow arched across the sky, touching the forest on both sides of the Rio Apoporis, which flowed beneath it like a serpent through a silent and unchanging forest. We landed late in the day at the dirt airstrip at San Miguel, the Catholic mission I had visited in 1977. I recognized the fields, the setting of the great longhouse, or Malocca, and the white sands along the river where children and women bathed in the black waters of the Piraparana. But otherwise, things seemed very different. A mission I recalled as a rather sad place of uh, destitute was gone. On our first night, a hundred or more people gathered in the Malocca, men in feathered regalia, to dance, chant, and take sacred medicines, coca and tobacco, chicha and yage. Shaman huddled over calabashes of spirit food, whispering and softly singing spells. For the first time, I heard the haunting sound of the sacred Uripari trumpets, created by the ancestors at the dawn of time. Long condemned by Catholic priests as symbols of the devil, these mythic instruments had been crushed and burned during the years of the mission. That their sound was still here, inspiring new generations of Barasana, Makuna, Tatuos, and other peoples of the river suggested powerfully that the culture was very much alive. In the 30 years or more since my first visit, the only thing that had disappeared on the Rio Piraprana, as Martin said, were the missionaries. Over the course of nearly a month, guided by Martin and Ricardo and other Barasana and Macuna leaders such as Maximiliano Garcia and Reinald Ortega Garcia, we traveled the rivers, attended ceremonies, and visited sacred sites. Cataracts where culture heroes had done battle with the forces of darkness and brought order into the world. Domes of black stone that held up the sky. Waterfalls that ran red with the menstrual blood of Romi Kumu, the great mother and progenitor of the earth. Flying in to join us midway through our sojourn was Stephen Hugh Jones, former head of anthropology at Cambridge, who, with his wife Christine, first lived among the Barasana in the late 1960s. He returned now as a respected elder, the only academic scholar fluent in the language. A humanist and profoundly insightful ethnographer, Stephen had dedicated much of his professional life to understanding the cosmology of the Barasana and their neighbors. His presence turned the journey into an ongoing tutorial of spirit and culture, an endless series of revelations that each day brought a deeper understanding of a subtle philosophy that was dazzling in its sophistication or profoundly hopeful in its implications. There is no beginning and end in Barasana thought, no sense of a linear progression of time, destiny, or fate. 
theirs is a fractal world in which no event has a life of its own, and any, any number of ideas can coexist in parallel levels of perception and meaning. Scale succumbs to intention. Every object must be understood, as Stephen told me, at various levels of analysis. A rapid is an impediment to travel, but also a house of the ancestors, with both a front and a back door. A stool is not a symbol of a mountain. It is, in every sense, an actual mountain, upon the summit of which sits the shaman. A row of stools is the ancestral anaconda, and the patterns painted onto the wood of the stools depict both the journey of the ancestors and the striations that decorate the serpent's skin. A corona of oropendola feathers really is the sun, each yellow plume array. The infinite elements of the Barasana world spin like a carousel in the mind, and there is no one obvious point of departure for even a modest attempt to explain the profundity of the people's intuitions about the meaning of being alive. Save, perhaps, the Maloka, the longhouse, which is both a physical space in which the people live and a cosmic model of the entire universe. If civilizations are measured, however crudely, by the scale of their monumental architecture, just as we measure the stonework of the Inca, the temples of the Maya, then the Maloka is a proof of the stunning achievements of the ancient peoples of the Amazon. These structures are enormous, their internal dimensions all-encompassing, 40 meters in length, perhaps 20 abreast, with vaulted ceilings rising to 10 meters above the dirt, uh, dirt floor hardened by 10,000 thunderous dance steps, as well as the quiet passage of children at dawn. The Maloka is the womb of the kindred, the dark and cool shelter of the clan, the communal space in which occurs and out of which emerges every societal gesture of the spirit. The symmetry of the structure is exquisite. Eight vertical posts placed evenly in two rows with two small pairs near the doors, cross beams and pleated rows of thatch woven over a grid of rafters. The house posts are named for the clan ancestors. The painted designs on the front facade depict the spirit beings and the patterns of color and visions unleashed in the mind by the Yage, the sacred preparation. On a mundane level, the space is divided between the genders, with the front of the longhouse being reserved for visitors and men. This is the social access where, in the flare of resin and beeswax torches, cocoa is prepared at night and tobacco taken in such concentrations that sweat comes to the fingertips and the world spins wildly, yet always in harmonic resonance. The women control the opposite end of the space, where the clay griddle rests on the four corner posts of the world. And cassava, a deadly poisonous plant, is each day transformed by the mothers into food, the daily bread of the people. The sustenance emerges at one stage of the preparation from a carefully woven sieve that is itself the mouth of the anaconda. The roof of the Maloka is the sky. The house posts the stone pillars and mountains that support it. The mountains, in turn, are the petrified remains of ancestral beings, the culture heroes who created the world. The smaller post represents the descendants of the original serpent. The ridge pole is simultaneously the path of the sun, the river of the sky, the Milky Way, the artery that separates the living from the limits of the universe. The floor is the earth, and beneath it runs the river of the underworld, 
the stream of death and sorrow. Thus, a celestial river crosses the sky as its inverse, Gathonic path of death, traverses the underworld. Each day the sun travels the sky from east to west, and each night it returns from west to east, following the river of the underworld, which is, in, is the place of the dead. The Barasana bury their elders in the floor of the Moloka, in coffins made of broken canoes. As they go about their daily lives, living within a space literally perceived as the womb of their lineage, the Indians walk above the physical remains of the ancestors. Yet inevitably, the spirits of the dead drift away, and to facilitate their departure, the Maloka is always built close to water. And since all rivers, including the river of the underworld, are believed to run east, each Maloka must be oriented along an east-west axis, with a door at each end, one for the men and one for the women. Thus, the placement of the Malokas adjacent to running streams is not just a matter of convenience. It is a way of acknowledging the cycle of life and death. The water both recalls the primordial act of creation, the river journey of the Anaconda and the mythical heroes, and foreshadows the inevitable moment of decay and rebirth. If the longhouse envelops the community, securing its eternal presence, celebrating its mythical origins, the earth itself is protected, by a universal maloka that hovers over the land, anchored by the sacred sites. The world of the Barasana and their neighbors is as flat and round as the clay griddle the women use to make manioc bread. As clay blocks prop up the griddle, so the actual sky, the roof of the cosmic maloka, is supported by a distant ring of hills, through which pass four sacred gateways. The doors of the north and south are the rib doors that link the body of humanity to the cosmos. The gateway to the west is the door of suffering, the destiny of the dead, and the axis through which destructive forces enter and stain the world. The water door to the east leads to the mouth of the Milk River, the point of origin where earth fuses with sky and the sun is born. For the Barasana and Makuna, these gateways are actual places, and traveling with Ricardo Marin, we saw them from the air. The world begins at the falls of the Yusi and ends at the cataract of Jirijimuro on Rio Apurus. The hills of the Tarira and the falls of the Urupapari on the Rio Vopes and Araracuara on the Rio Caqueta, the mountain escarpments beyond the Canamari, these are physical points of origin, a mythic geography written upon the land. In the beginning, before the creation of seasons, before the ancestral mother, Romikuma, mother Shaman, opened her womb, before her blood and breast milk gave rise to rivers and her ribs to the mountain ridges of the world, there was only chaos in the universe. Spirits and demons, known as he, preyed on their own kindred, bred without thought, committed incest without consequence, devoured their own young. Romikumu responded by destroying the world with fire and floods. Then, just as a mother turns over a warm slab of manioc bread on the griddle, she turned the inundated and charred world upside down, creating a flat and empty template from which life could emerge once again. As woman shaman, she gave birth to a new world, land, water, forest, and animals. 
In a parallel story of creation, four great culture heroes, the Iowa, also known as the Primordial Ancestors or the Thunders, came up the Milk River from the east, passing through the water door, pushing before them as plows the sacred trumpets of the Urupari, creating valleys and waterfalls. Rivers were born of their saliva. Slivers of wood broken off by the effort gave rise to the first ritual artifacts and musical instruments. As the Iowa journeyed toward the center of the world, the notes of the trumpets brought into being the mountains and uplands, the posts and walls of cosmic Maloka. Every turn, the Iowa confronted greedy demonic forces, avaricious spirits that thrived on destruction and coveted the world. Outwitting the monsters, casting them into stone, the Iowa brought order to the universe, causing the essence and energy of the natural world to be released for the benefit of all sentient creatures and every form of life. Then, stealing the creative fire from the vagina of the woman shaman, they made love to her and, fully satiated, rose into the heavens to become thunder and lightning. Realizing she was pregnant, woman shaman went downriver to the water door of the east, where she gave birth to the ancestral anaconda. In time, the serpent retraced the harrowing journey of the Iowa returning in body and spirit to the riverbanks, waterfalls, and rocks, where it birthed the clan ancestors of the Barasana, Makuna, and all their neighbors. Each of these physical and geographical points of memory remains vibrant and alive. The sacred nexus, where the Iowa released to humans the raw energy of life, even as they bequeath to all people of the Anaconda the eternal obligation to manage the flow of creation. Thus, for the people living today in the forests of the Piripurana, the entire natural world is saturated with meaning and cosmological significance. Every rock and waterfall embodies a story. Plants and animals are but distinct physical manifestations of the same essential spiritual essence. At the same time, everything is more than it appears, for the visible world is only one level of perception. Behind every tangible form, Every plant and animal is a shadow dimension, a place invisible to ordinary people, but visible to the shaman. This is the realm of the he spirits, a world of deified ancestors where rocks and rivers are alive, plants and animals are human beings, sap and blood the bodily fluids of the primordial river of the anaconda. Hidden in cataracts behind the physical veil of waterfalls is the very center of stones are the great malakas of the he spirits. Where everything is beautiful, the shining feathers, the coca, the calabash of tobacco powder, which is itself the skull and brains of the sun. It is to the realm of the he spirits that the shaman goes in ritual. Contrary to popular lore in the West, the shaman of the Barasana never uses or manipulates medicinal plants. His duty and sacred task is to move in the timeless realm of the he, embrace the primordial powers, and harness and restore the energy of all creation. He is like a modern engineer who enters the depths of a nuclear reactor to renew the entire cosmic order. Among the Barasana, such renewal is the fundamental obligation of the living. In practice, this implies that the Barasana see the earth as potent, the forest as being alive with spiritual beings and ancestral powers. To live off the land is to embrace both its creative and destructive potential. Human beings 
plants, and animals share the same cosmic origins, and in a profound sense are seen as essentially identical, responsive to the same principles, obligated by the same duties, responsible for the collective well-being of creation. There is no separation between nature and culture. Without the forest and the rivers, humans would perish. But without people, the natural world would have no order or meaning. All would be chaos. Thus, the norms that drive social behavior also define the manner in which human beings interact with the wild, the plants and animals, the multiple phenomena of the natural world, lightning and thunder, the sun and the moon, the scent of a blossom, the sour odor of death. Everything is related, everything connected, a single integrated whole. Mythology infuses land and life with meaning, encoding expectations and behaviors essentially to, to survival in the forest, anchoring each community, every maloka, to a profound spirit of place. These cosmological ideas have very real ecological consequences, both in terms of the way people live and the impacts they have on their environment. The forest is the realm of the men, the garden of the domain of the women, where they give birth to both plants and children. The women cultivate 30 or more food crops and encourage the fertile and fecundity of some 20 varieties of wild fruits and nuts. The men grow only tobacco and coca, which they plant in narrow winding paths that run through the women's fields, like serpents in the grass. For the women, the act of harvesting and preparing cassava, the daily bread, is a gesture of procreation and a form of initiation. The starchy fluid left over, once the grated mesh has been fully rinsed, is seen as female blood that can be rendered safe by heat and drunk warm like mother's milk. The crude manioc fiber resembles the bone of men. Fired on the griddle, shaped by female hands, the cassava is the medium through which the plant spirits of the wild are domesticated for the good of all. Like all food, it has ambivalent potential. It gives life, but may also bring disease and misfortune. Thus, nothing can be eaten unless it is passed through the hands of an elder and being blessed and spiritually cleansed by the shaman. Food in this sense is power, for it represents the transfer of energy from one life form to another. As a child grows, he or she is only slowly introduced to new categories of food, and severe food restrictions mark all the major passages of life, moments of initiation for a male, the first menses for a woman, tra transitional moments when the human being by definition is in contact with the spirit realm of the he. When men go to the forest to hunt or fish, it is never a trivial passage. First, the shaman must travel in trance to negotiate with the masters of the animals, forging a mystical contract with the spiritual guardians, an exchange based always on reciprocity. The Barasana compare it to marriage, for hunting too is a form of courtship, in which one seeks the blessing of a greater authority for the honor of taking into one's family a precious being. Meat is not the right of the hunter, but a gift from the spirit world. To kill without permission is to risk death by a spirit guardian, be it in the form of a jaguar, anaconda, tapir, or harpy eagle. Man in the forest is always both predator and prey. 
the same cautious and established social protocols that maintain peace and respect between neighboring clans of people that facilitate the exchange of ritual goods, food, and women are applied to nature. Animals are potential kin, just as the, as the wild rivers and forests are part of the social world of people. All of these ideas and restrictions create, as anthropologist Kaj Aram has written, what is essentially a land management plan inspired by myth. Of the 45 game animals available to the Barasana and Makuna, for example, only 20 are hunted with any regularity. Of some 40 species of fish, perhaps 25 are consumed. The complex food restrictions result in a highly diversified subsistence base, which is concentrated on the lower end of the food chain. Tapir, though highly prized, is rarely hunted and is reserved at any rate for the elders. Meat in general, though important to the identity of the hunter, is far less important as a source of protein than fish or insects. Ants, larvae, and termites, along with cassava bread, are the foundations of a diet and a cuisine that is both delicious and highly sophisticated. Since virtually every bend and rapid in a river, every stream crossing, and every stone is associated with a mythic event, the entire landscape is mapped in the mind of the shaman. Hunters avoid salt licks. Fishing is prohibited in places toxic with the blood of the ancestors. Beaches and side channels that also happen to be spawning habitat for Sibelta and or Palometa. Entire stretches of the Piripurana, home to several hundred species of fish, are deemed off-limits for spiritual reasons. Shamanic sanctions, though inspired by cosmology, have the very real effect of mitigating the impact of human beings on the environment. And as the mythological events that inspired such beliefs are ongoing, the consequence is a living philosophy that literally does view man and nature as one. Where this all comes alive is in ritual. Before leaving the Parapurana, we attended a fertility ceremony in honor of Kasava Woman, an event that lasted for two days and nights, attracting hundreds of men and women and families from up and down the river to the Maloca at Puerto Ortega. Our host was Rinal Ortega Garcia, our Basana shaman. The chief of the Maloca was Patricio, his wife Rosa was cassava woman, symbol of fertility and continuity. All of the hierarchical leadership was in place. The chanter and the dancers, the wisdom keeper and the chief, the shaman and the kumu, the priest. Stephen Hugh Jones described the roles of these distinct religious figures with a curious metaphor. The shaman, he said, is like the minister of foreign affairs. He deals laterally with the forces of nature. Meanwhile, the Kumur priest deals vertically through time with the ancestors. He does not improvise. His language, like that of the chants, is liturgical, archaic, beyond the understanding of all but those who have been taught its inner meaning. His is a canon of deep religious knowledge, and he does not deviate or improvise. To do so, would be as inappropriate as a Catholic priest changing the language and prayers of the Eucharist. Intensity of devotion was most evident in the men responsible for weaving the feathered coronas to be used in the dance. They had been isolated in the Maloka for several weeks, 
forbidden to eat meat or fish, or to be with their wives. To create the brilliant yellow plumes, they had plucked the feathers of living birds and applied a paste of frog venom and toxic berries to the breast of the parrots, causing the new plumage, normally deep red, to emerge the color of the sun. The regalia is not decorative. It is the literal connection to sacred space, the wings to the divine. As the ritual begins, time collapses. There are two series of dances separated by the liminal moments of the day, dawn, dusk, and midnight. In donning the feathers, the yellow corona of pure thought, the white egret plumes of the rain, the men become the ancestors, just as the river is the anaconda, the mountains, the house posts of the world, the shaman, the shapeshifter, in one moment a predator, in the next the prey. He changes from fish to animal, to human being and back again, transcending every form, becoming pure energy flowing among every dimension of reality, past and present, here and there, mythic and mundane. His chance recall by name every point of, point of geography met on the ancestral journey of the anaconda, toponyms that can be traced back with complete accuracy more than 1,600 kilometers down the Amazon to the east where the great civilizations once thrived. White people, Ricardo told me, see with their eyes, but the Barasana see with their minds. They journey both to the dawn of time and into the future, visiting every sacred site, paying homage to every creature as they celebrate their most profound cultural insight, the realization that animals and plants are only people in, other, in another dimension of reality. This is the essence of the Barasana philosophy. Consider for a moment what this implies and what it tells us about the culture and its place in history. It is a tradition based on knowledge acquisition through time and intense priestly study and situation, initiation. Status accrues to the man of wisdom, not the warrior. The Maloka's rival in grandeur, the great architectural creations of humanity, they have a complex understanding of astronomy, solar calendars, intense notions of hierarchy and specialization. Their wealth is vested in ritual regalia, as elegant as that of any medieval court. Their systems of exchange, infinitely complex, facilitate peace, not war. Their struggle to bring order to the universe, to maintain the energetic flows of life and the specificity of their beliefs and adaptations leaves open the very remarkable possibility that the Barasana are the survivors of a world that once existed, the complex societies and chieftains that so astonished Gaspar de Caraval and Francisco Dorellana, the lost civilizations of the Amazon. Perhaps in the adaptation and cultural survival of the Barasana and the Makuna and all the peoples of the Anaconda, we can glimpse something of the beliefs and convictions that allowed untold millions to live along the banks of the world's greatest river. When the Barasana today emerge in ritual and take Yagi, an astonishing potion, and say that they travel through multiple dimensions, reliving the journey of the Iowa, alighting on the sacred sites, accomplishing all of these remarkable spiritual deeds, it is because they really do. 
When we say that the Barasana and their neighbors both echo the ancient pre-Columbian past and point a way forward, embodying a model of how human societies can live and thrive in the Amazon basin without laying waste to the forest, it is because they really can. The end. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to check the actual text for notes and additional information and graphics. And remember, every day is a learning day.